Hey, everybody. Welcome to You Were Born for this podcast with Father John Ricardo. That's me. I'm Father John. I'm the executive director at Acts 29, where we talk about anything and everything having to do with transformation in the church. I'm here, as always, with my uh, dear sister, Mary. Apparently, some people actually think you're my sister. No, no, they think I'm a sister. They think I'm a nun. Oh, you're a religious. That's the conversation. Oh, yeah. So Mary is not a religious. I would call her sister, Mary, if that was the case. So she's just like sister in Jesus. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Father. Charles. And we have a really special guest, don't we? Yes, we do. We're with Monsignor James Shea. Uh, we happen to be at the Napa Institute out here in sunny Napa Valley. He is the president of the University of Mary. Go Marauders. We Go had, Marauders. We had That's a great a conversation with you earlier today, and we just wanted to share it with those of you who listen to our podcast. So we're just thrilled to have you with us. Yeah, today. welcome, Monsignor. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. I'm I'm, a, I'm an admirer of Acts 29. I love what you guys are doing, and I just feel really honored to be part of this conversation. Well, we have Thanks. a lot of connections. I mean, there's too many to list right now, but yeah. I mean, one of the immediate connections is uh, we are constantly pushing from Christendom to Apostolic Mission, which, of course, you published at University of Mary and, uh, and wrote the foreword to. And then uh, we got a kind of joint venture with the Christian Cosmic Narrative, which we just published, which is also with uh, Prime Matters. It's so exciting. That's right. On Prime Matters, we've got the audio project. And so we've got about five hours of audio there. And then we were so thrilled to be able to, to uh, partner with you uh, in terms of the, the print edition. It's really yeah. great. Fantastic. Praise God. So what's our topic, Mary? So our topic today is bringing transformation to Catholic education. What does he know about Catholic education? He's only the president <laughs> of a Catholic university. <laughs> So, Father, before we dive in, would you just open us in prayer? Yeah, let's do that. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we just uh, entrust our conversation to you right now. We want to thank you in a very special way for uh, Monsignor and for the good work that he and all the brothers and sisters are doing at University of Mary. Lord, bless them and uh, especially all the students there and all of our young brothers and sisters who are preparing soon to go back to school. May what happens in these months ahead be life-changing for them. May they encounter you more deeply. May their imagination be expanded by the power of your spirit. May they come to know the plan that you have for them. So, Lord, we, uh, we just entrust all we're going to do into your hands, and we thank you in advance for your grace on this conversation. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Monsignor, it might be worth, just, just tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, so you were the youngest president of any university? Of any university in the country. How old were you? I was, I was named at 33. Uh, which is, I think, in the Christian world, the time to die. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was named president at 33, and I was inaugurated at 34. And the average age of a college president in this, in this country at that time was 62. It's since increased. Um, but uh, it's, it's usually uh, sort of the cherry on the top of a long, sometimes illustrious academic career. And I was unqualified in every way for the world. You must have had like a great grade school career. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. I brought apples every day to my teachers (laughs) and then I became a university president. So you've been there how long now? I've been there 12 years. Wow. 12 years. 12 years. And it's, it's, you know, I was, I was thinking the other day, I had the anniversary of my priesthood. And so I'm 19 years a priest and 12 of those years have been at the University of Mary. And, um, and it felt much longer in a certain sense, not because it's been full of sorrow, but because it's been so full. It's mm-hmm. been a, a very full life mm-hmm. uh, to be in service to Catholic higher education and to the Blessed Mother, whose name hangs over the door at the University of Mary. Um, and so, yeah, I was the youngest college president 
in the United States, I think until about a year and a half ago, when uh, they named a new young Dominican sister as the new president of Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee, who is from Hebron, North Dakota, 60 miles from oh the gosh. campus of the no University kidding. of Mary, and was a college classmate of my younger brother. Oh my gosh. And so, and so it's amazing. That's what we do in North Dakota, is we raise super unqualified young <laughs> college presidents. It's our specialty. Everybody's got to be known for something. That's right. You got it. I love it. So I, I know we want to talk about the... Um, we were really want to talk about Catholic education. Yeah. We had a great conversation. We were at lunch with you today. But I want to ask you to share, uh, you and I offline, we had a story, or you shared with me a story, which I just find to be so encouraging. Uh, mindful of so many people right now in the church who are so, like, increasingly, and I don't want to say unjustified, but frustrated, irritated by the things that they see, the the, the various scandals that are taking place in the church. And you shared something which I just can't get out of my head. Will you share this story with everybody right now? Yeah, so, you know, right before the pandemic uh, descended, I was asked to preach a couple of parish missions, one down at uh, Corpus Christi Parish in Phoenix, Arizona, which is very near where the University of Mary has a campus at Arizona State University. So I was asked to preach that. And then I was asked to preach in the midst of Lent, um, a parish mission for um, Epiphany Parish in Coon Rapids, which is another location of the University of Mary. We have offices there to serve the students uh, from the Twin Cities. Okay. Uh, and we, we anyway, uh, so I was asked to do these two parish missions. And so I was trying to get, I didn't want to write two different ones. And so I was trying to do a shorter one in Arizona and then expand it a little bit for um, Minnesota. So I did sort of a, a, an initial um, go at it at Corpus Christi. Then the pandemic descended, um, and and uh, and I wasn't able to do it in Coon Rapids. But then, because all of the churches were shut down, I preached the parish mission um, uh, during Holy Week every day of Holy Week last year. And what was interesting is there was an image that I had wrestled with in the wake of all the scandal, uh, the, mm. the bitter, bitter scandal that the church had endured in the year previous. I didn't know, of course, uh, when I was wrestling with these ideas uh, that we would end up uh, in the grip of a pandemic, because here was the image. Uh, and it, it, it comes to us from the great tradition, of course, laced with uh, insights of people like St. John Henry, Henry Newman, but this idea that in every age what happens is that the church takes into herself all the wickedness and stupidity and infidelity and error of thinking and error of desiring of the age. The church takes all of that into herself in every single age as the body of Christ and then develops the antibodies for it. Uh, within. And so the vaccine, of course, is in the blood because we're the body of Christ. And so uh, that that image to me has been so hopeful because it, it's a reminder that we're never supposed to be unduly scandalized, certainly not surprised to find wickedness in the church, to find infidelity, to find stupidity, and to find that error, the error of the age particularly, the error which is specific to every age should find a place in the church so that the church can work it out and provide the vaccine for the whole world. And that that's, that's a methodology then. Uh, it's, it's an organic way in which God's salvation works itself out in every age of humanity uh, for a fallen race uh, as we're making our way to the kingdom. And so I've just been so sustained by that image uh, th through the whole year in the midst of the pandemic as a way of framing my own thought about what I should be expecting in the mm. church that I love. 
So I heard that I don't know, a couple hours ago. You just heard that for the first time right now. I don't know about you, but I'm just so blown away by that image personally and find so much hope and encouragement in it. And, uh, it, and as you said, it's, it's, not to, it's not to say that we just go, oh, who cares? I guess this is no big deal. This is just how things work. It, it's a way of understanding, like, this is classic teaching, right? God allows evil only because good can come from it. Right. The, the, and, the, and the fight for humanity is taking place at all times primarily within the church. So the church has a twofold battle. Of course, the battle to advance uh, the kingdom, uh, to advance the, um, the evangelization of the world. But oftentimes we conflate that with, with the, the battle that happens parallel within the church. In other words, constantly there's a battle which is taking place within the church herself. And that's the battle in which error and truth go up against each other. And in which in that, in that struggle where truth always wins, although not readily, mm. although not always visibly, where truth always prevails, mm-hmm. that's how the church then within herself is developing the antibodies in, in the blood of Christ mm-hmm. that then it, it's able to offer uh, to the whole world as a vaccine. I'm just thinking of all the people who are praying, you know, for uh, a vaccine to be developed for yep. COVID, right? Yep. And so as I'm listening to you talk, I'm just thinking that that's what we need to be praying right now. It's just says, Lord, just help the church as she goes through all that she's going through, find the vaccine, find the antibody to these various uh, illnesses that are plaguing the age in which we're living in right now. Well, think about the sexual revolution and all of the ravages of it and all of the wickedness and foresight of the enemy in devising it as a way, we talked earlier about marriage and family being on the front lines, you know, of so many of these struggles. That, um, that, uh, that confusion, that error about the purpose of human love in the divine plan, that, of course, has found its way into the, into the church, not into the heart of the church, but into the body of the church, such that, um, that, that that struggle is a worthy struggle for us to be fighting valiantly within the church herself, such that then uh, future generations will have the benefit of the of the antibodies of the vaccine, which is developed. And part of the antibodies is the theology of the body. That's right. That's I mean, it. That's where it comes from, right? That's I mean, right. Come, like take ingesting the sickness yeah. of the sexual revolution into herself and then outcomes from some celibate guy from Poland, yeah. Yeah. this extraordinary insight yeah. that's, that's helping to heal so many people. But it, it it's it's so helpful because the disease is so bad, right? And so we got to hope that something similar is coming. we got to trust that. Not wishful thinking. We have to have the theological virtue of hope that the Lord's doing yes. something similar with these other things. The divine physician mm-hmm. is what comes to my mind, right? I mean, he's the remedy for everything. But yes. we talk about the divine physician, but I often don't think about this will change the way I think about calling Jesus, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes. The divine physician That's who right. can handle every illness, every pandemic. Um, the pandemic that is the human heart. Right. Always. Where, where all of that begins. Yeah, we we could drop the mic right Great now because that, that image alone, <laughs> I just find Plenty so amazingly have, inspiring. Have either of you ever run across this extraordinary little short story, A Hint of an Explanation by Graham Greene? No. I'm familiar with Graham Greene, but not so, the story. So I, I, won't, I don't want to ruin the story for anybody, but I'd encourage both of you and all of our listeners to, to pick up this story because it's, it's, an, it's, it's brief. 
I read it around a campfire to our year-round campus students, the students who stay on campus in the summertime, and I read it around a campfire to them, and it never fails to transform. It's a, it's an, it's it mind-blowing. But what what he what he does there in the in the form of a story is uh, he 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 um, he has in in this dialogue between two characters uh, who are riding together on on, on a train. He, he has one of them say that sometimes he feels a little bit sorry for that great enemy of the mm. human race because constantly, all the time, he, the enemy is, is with great intensity, with great um, sort of wily, uh, wily cleverness, uh, forming this plan and then the sword turns back upon him. In in every instance, his plans are foiled. He's destroyed. He shatters into pieces. And it happens again and again and again. And and this is this is what happened at the cross that's when right. Jesus shed his blood, which was of course the ultimate vaccine. And then that's what happens again and again in every age. And so we have the assault, the onslaught of something like the sexual revolution. And we have to have the theological virtue of hope that that's precisely what's going to happen. The sword will be turned back upon him and the church will have a clear clearer sense than it ever has about what to do about lust what to do about self-gift what to do about sacrifice and marriages and family it's it's going to be great so everybody in the room just started immediately googling a hint of an explanation i think they downloaded it i love it oh That's you great. gotta read it oh father father ricardo you're gonna love it oh this is so awesome so- um so I want to turn the conversation just real quick back to the purpose of Catholic education. Yes, yes. So I uh, just for, would love to hear from your heart, the heart that you shared with us at yeah. lunch, from your perspective. Tell us about the purpose of Catholic education. Yeah, so why do I sit around as a college president yes. and read short stories uh, mm. to students yes. uh, around a campfire? Yeah. Well, it has to do with this purpose of, of, of Catholic education. Yes. And so the church, of course, it, and this is something that we need to remember. The church from the very beginning has been a genius at education. Now, we didn't invent education. Uh, education has a much larger and, and longer patrimony going all the way back to the Greeks. But we took what the Greeks and the Romans in it had developed, this sense of paideia, which was this sort of physical and intellectual and moral uh, training of the ideal citizen of the city of the polis. And, and, and Christian genius was able uh, to transform that and to, to provide it with a kind of metaphysical ballast necessary to really do education well. And our understanding of education from the very beginning, and it's imbued with this imaginative vision of the gospel, is that we're not just forming the intellect and we're not just forming the will although those things are both important, we're we're actually educating the imagination and we're quickening or awakening the the imagination in the work that we do. And if we don't do that, then we're leaving so much on the table because human beings have this extraordinary capacity to be able to hold a whole world within our minds, you know, to be able to, 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 to remember the past and to scope out the future, and to be aware of the present, and to hold it all together. And within that is a sense of our place in the world, the meaning of the world, the meaning of our lives, who God is, why I should get up every morning and fight life's battle. The questions, all of these questions, which are important questions, cannot be worked out simply by ourselves. We have to avail ourselves of wisdom which comes beyond us. And they can't be worked out in terms of ourselves either in the isolation or the noise or static of our own minds and hearts. 
what's necessary is that we need to we need to find a community in which these great questions of life and and the, the potency of the imagination can can be brought in order to come alive and to become informed and 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 filled uh, and so uh, and it's not just about like the the filling of a pail; it's the lighting of a fire, you know. Uh, and so, uh, the purpose of of Catholic education then is to provide a transformative experience for the imagination to awaken the Catholic imaginative vision in the world. And that, of course, can happen across all kinds of disciplines. So, when we were talking at lunch, I was telling you about the University of Mary being this peculiar school where our emphasis from the very foundation, because we're more than sixty years old now. When the sisters, the Benedictine sisters who founded Mary College, uh, when they uh, first launched the university, our first majors were nursing and teaching. And then since then, we branched out into all these different areas of study. Recently, we started a school of engineering. We've got the number one nursing program in America. It's very exciting. And in, in respect to all of these things, um, we believe that no matter what a person is studying, uh, whether they're whether they're studying business or psychology or education or botany or journalism, any of those different fields of study, we can imbue that with uh, with this Catholic imaginative vision, and that's the work of something like Catholic Studies at the University of Mary. In any case, cutting to the chase, um, as I shared with you earlier, I believe that there are three outcomes that we're responsible for uh, at a place like the University of Mary, where we attract a large number. Praise God of serious Catholic students who are looking for a really affordable, really engaging Catholic experience of, of, of university studies, but also where we attract very large numbers of students who are coming for all kinds of other reasons. They want to play NCAA volleyball or baseball. Uh, they want to get a doctorate in physical therapy or occupational therapy. Uh, they they want to, um, uh, to, to get a, a bachelor's degree in business with uh, some type of concentration. And so they're coming for all kinds of different reasons. And we have a chance uh, not just to fortify the Catholic student who comes to us, but to surprise the other student uh, with, uh, with this vision by awakening their imagination. So I say that there are three outcomes. First of all, you'd expect me to say this, and I have a responsibility to say it, and I believe it deeply. First of all, we would hope uh, that students would come and at the end of their experience they would be able to tell a story like this. I was raised in a family of faith. My mom and dad baptized me and taught me the faith. But I had no idea that it was better than winning the lottery. I had no idea that I, that, that, that I had been completely given uh, something that so few are given, but which is the pearl of great price. And so I took it for granted. I took my faith for granted, and I came in uh, to the University of Mary, and I thought, I know my stuff. I'm big stuff. You know what I mean? There's nothing I need to learn here, that type of thing. Or, or I had a kind of a, 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 a strange idea or a weird idea about how I could witness to or share my faith. I just didn't know how. And while I was here, I received the formation of mind and heart and imagination necessary to really do the work of evangelization, <laughs> which is the work of my life. I now understand that, and I'm able to share the gospel in a winsome way. And Holy cow, did I get good technical training. Give me any board exam and I'll pass it. But I got so much more than that with no extra charge. And so I'm so grateful for the Catholic education that I've received here. That's one outcome. The second outcome uh, is an, another thing that you might expect, that all of these students who come to us uh, might be able to say, 
you know, I, I went to the University of Mary. I was a, um, I was a nominal Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic. I didn't, or, or I just didn't really have any deep convictions. But I went there because, you know, I, I wanted to play this sport. I wanted to pursue this academic uh, program, whatever. And, but while I was there, I encountered Jesus Christ and his saving promises. And because of the witness that was given to me by my professors or by uh, this kid that I met in the laboratory or in the Crow's Nest Campus restaurant or something like that, because of that, my whole life is different. And, and uh, it's been turned upside down. All of my priorities are different. The way that I think about, the way that I spend my time, everything is different and transformed because of that. My life will never be the same because I went to a Catholic college. But then there's a third outcome. And, and I think that, um, of course, we're recording this, and so it's on the record, but I, I don't care. Uh, there's a third outcome, and that's this. That's the student who, upon graduation, is able to say something like, you know, I went to a Catholic college. Those Catholics, holy cow, they believe a lot of things. Oh, they believe and believe and believe. They've got all kinds of doctrines and dogmas and, and principles and, and uh, arguments and, and uh, proofs. And, and uh, I don't believe all that. I don't believe everything that they believe. But I'll tell you, they are impressive people. Holy cow, they know how to build things, they know how to run things, and they know how to make a home. Like, I never felt like I was a second-class citizen there. I always felt like I had a place at the table. They care for each other, and they cared for me, and I had a great time there. And I want to tell you something. All these things that you read about them, that the media says or that the world says, all the yes. things you hear about them, it's not true. They're not like that. They're really great. They're not perfect, but they're really great people. I'm so glad I went to a Catholic college. If a, if a young man or a young woman can say that at 23, I'm going to sleep like a baby at night because I think the Holy Spirit can do the rest and I don't have to do everything by the time that they're 23. But on the converse, on the flip side, if a student comes and says, you know, I went to a Catholic college, it was so lukewarm that I lost my faith or I became really cynical or uh, I went to a Catholic college and it was great because you could barely tell that they were Catholic. I mean, it was just as beige as ever. And so I may as well have gone to the state university, but actually I went to this other place and spent more money. Isn't that great? That would be a disaster. Right. And then we should close. And so those are kind of the outcomes. But in each of those three areas, you see what I'm looking at. Yes. I'm talking about a transformation of imagination, a maturation, a mm -hmm. growth, which can only happen in the context of a rich experience of community. So let, let me ask you, let me push on something real quick, because yes. I know this confuses people. So you say imagination. Mm -hmm. So you don't mean make-believe. I don't mean make No, I, we're not talking about fairy say, tale. say something quick about that. What do you mean by the Christian imagination? Right. So imagination, once again, is a faculty. So here I'm talking about not, not imaginary uh, uh, worlds or, or fairy tales or those types of things. I am talking about this capacity that we're able to hold the whole world in our minds and that our self-understanding and our sense of meaning and purpose, everything is, is, um, is, is wrapped up in that. If you, if you read like um, uh, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Right. If, if you read um, the, the work of Holocaust survivors, um, you find that, that the mortality rate among those who just gave up on life because nothing made sense anymore. Every, uh, not just God died, but, 
but the the, the interior sense of self died, <laughs> then you just collapse. Uh, and, and that's happening because we live in a nihilistic time. <laughs> and so people come to us, they wash up on the shore of a place like the University of Mary. Maybe they look young and vibrant, but deep down they're dead. Right. Uh, and, and boy, they're longing to live. Something in them wants to live, but it doesn't know how. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we can't do it simply by, uh, by giving them rules without reasons. <laughs> and we can't do it simply by giving them reasons either, because uh, just a, an intellectual mm-hmm. or conceptual understanding of things isn't enough. There has to be um, sort of the potency of witness in which they're able to see all around them people who aren't dead anymore Mm -hmm. and say, I might not have to be dead. This would be Mm -hmm. like, wow. (laughs) Right. And and, and what you're talking about sounds like, you know, people come into university with some intellectual wounds. They get healed. That's right. You're just not talking about healing of a heart, the transformation of heart, might, but you're talking about healing the intellectual wounds of our day. And we know there's scores of those. That's right. Yeah, that's that's usually, that's actually the biggest problem right now, right? I mean, we we talked about that or we, we both push this. I know you, yes. uh, you and what you're doing and what, and what we do. I mean, the root wound right now yeah. is, is in the mind, mm. that's right. isn't it? That's right. I mean, we just it, don't think rightly. No, that's right. And it can get it can get obscured or confused because so many of the problems have such an obvious moral character. But if right. you dig a little bit deeper, mm-hmm. you're seeing that, that we live in a very peculiar time in which very sophisticated intellectual justifications for crazy and destructive yes. and violent things mm-hmm. have been put forth and then somehow find traction. Yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. and in the end, they'll be the, the, they'll they'll be destructive. Uh, they're destructive right now, and then they'll self-destruct. And so how, how, how encouraging and hopeful it is for people to know, hey, at least there's one place I can send my child to <laughs> where they're actually striking seriously the task of trying to heal the intellectual wounds. I mean, so uh, I, I hope I hope you get a huge waiting list this year at the <laughs> University of Mary. Um, there's some great Catholic universities. But it, it's such a gift it's to uh, for people to hear um, what's going on in Bismarck and the work that you're doing. I want to ask you one last thing. You and I yeah. were talking earlier and we came to realize uh, that there's uh, a mutual love for Joan of Arc. <laughs> T- tell us about uh, Joan of Arc's um, impact at the university. Yeah, so I couldn't believe it when you when you were when you were quoting her when we were talking earlier. That very quote, "I'm not afraid. I was born for this." I said, Father Ricardo, there's no way that you could know if that if you walk into the freshman residence hall at the University of Mary, that quote is the first thing you see. It's hanging there prominently because. The, the young women who live in that residence hall, so it's our, it's our freshman women's residence hall, which was carefully crafted with a view toward uh, imbuing the women with a sense that encounter is possible and that they're not alone because the ravages of isolation among young college-age women has created an epidemic of all kinds of problems, deep shame, uh, self-loathing, mental health struggle, and then deep spiritual kind of paralysis where they don't feel... Uh, like addiction to pornography, all of these things cascade out of it. And so we've crafted the whole building, including the chapel, which is the Accursus Domini Chapel, the Encounter with the Lord Chapel, which we call Jacob's Well. Uh, we've, we've, we've crafted the whole building around this sense of encounter, but right at the front door, there she is, Joan of Arc, I'm not afraid I was born for this. Then if you go over to the, to the, to the residence, to the home where I kind of live, I don't know that I really... Kind I'm, of live? I'm, I'm not there very much. You know what I... It's not that I'm dead. It's that I'm not there very much. And so I, the, in, the, in the building in which I sleep, I have uh, a great big um, painting. And it was right when I was named president 
um, I was sent up to, to Harvard University for this like boot camp for new college presidents. And then I wanted to go down and see some friends in New York City, including Cardinal Dolan, who both of us know from our own seminary formation. So I was in New York City. I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and there, there's this, do you know this this great painting? I probably have it in my room, too. So she, she's, she's in her father's garden, and you can just barely see the voices of the saints, and she's staring off into the distance, and I was mesmerized by her. I was mesmerized by her because at that point, I was... I was young, not as young as her, but I was too young for my job. I was too young to be a university president. I was also too young then to lead the armies of France. <laughs> and so um, and so I just had to have her. And so she she hangs in my residence. I see her every, every day when I get up and then every night just as I'm getting ready to go to bed. There she is uh, filling me with courage uh, because what she did uh, was just to rely on the Lord. <laughs> Yeah, amen. Astounding. Amen. And that's what we have to do. Yeah, amen. amen. You know, there's the, the, the reality of the community. So even as you're talking, I just keep thinking, um, the communion of saints mm. is not merely a line. You know, it's not simply we simply recite that we believe in in the creed. It's a right. truth. It's a reality. Right, right, right. right? There, there is such a thing as a friendship that continues to exist between us and those who've gone before us because Jesus has destroyed death. Right. And so they are somewhere right now. They're doing something right now. And they're loving God and they're loving their neighbor and their neighbor's us because we need help. And, and that's what we've got to do. We've got to get into every line of the creed and imbue it with this imaginative vision. Right. Every single, because think about the early ages of the church in which the, the fathers were fighting crazy, cra they were hitting each other over the head with rocks. Yeah. Over, over <laughs> each other's over, beards. Over, right, right, right. Pulling each over other's beards. Over every line. Over every line, over every syllable. And it was so important to them because what they were trying to do is is capture the, 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 the vibrant light of faith. And so I know you're doing that here at Acts, at Acts 29, and you're doing a great job with it. We're trying to do the best we can at the University of Mary, too, both for our students on the main campus and then the online campus. We've got that project, uh, primematters.com, which is kind of this great repository for awakening the Catholic imaginative vision. Yeah, it's a great source. Please check it out, people. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, it's we're, we're we're trying to do that. Let's get inside of every line of the creed and every line of the scriptures and make it come alive for so, ourselves and for others. So maybe we can we can close with this. Here's here's the task this week as we, as we prepare to go to mass uh, on Sunday when we're going to recite the creed and we're going to get to that line. I believe in the communion of saints. Yes. I want to give everybody a visual that's coming to mind as you're talking. The visual is simply this: as we say those words, see and hear Joan say to you those words. Do not be afraid. God is with you. And you were born for this. <laughs>